if everyone in their in their sort of analog world, their sort of waking life, was able to um, become more and more connected to each other, right? To find social networks in person, meeting in person, you know, that would be wonderful, and I encourage that. But when I look around, we're becoming increasingly embedded in a technology landscape, and the next generation is going to be even more embedded. And so, my concern is if people are going to be more and more embedded in technology, then that technology better be able to support um, the type of social connection that we need for our health and our sanity. Welcome to Digital Mindfulness. I'm your host, Lawrence Sampofo. Today we're here with Mikey Siegel. As a Stanford lecturer, founder of Consciousness Hacking and TEDx speaker, Mikey's working to help the technology community better impact the way human beings connect. You should listen to this episode if you want to understand how VR will change the face of human connection, how the attention economy affects you, and also how technology can bring about really deep human connection. But first off, welcome to the show. We bring together the best teachers and thought leaders to teach you how to be your best self in an age of digital distraction and information overload. If you're new to the show, then the best place to find out more about us is to visit digitalmindfulness.net forward slash start, which has a collection of some required listening podcasts where we discuss everything from becoming more focused in a distracted world to habit building, overcoming digital distraction, cyberbullying and much more. Okay, on with the show with Mikey Siegel. Hi, Mikey. Thank you so much for being a part of Digital Mindfulness. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. So I'm really looking forward to talking more with you. And I think this is going to be a fascinating episode. So welcome. Thank you. It's a total pleasure to be here. I love what you're doing. So let's just start by having you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself and your projects and how it is you came to be working on this whole fascinating idea of digital and human flourishing. Yeah, um, totally. So the, the short story is, um, is my, my background is as a, as an engineer, I studied computer engineering, and then I did my graduate work in robotics, kind of in this, um, sort of sci-fi, um, uh, intersection place called social robotics, where you had these robots that actually, um, um, could perceive and express emotion and really interact with people at a social level. And that was kind of the beginning of my journey of exploring um, the, the different ways that human beings can relate to technology and realizing it was more than just pushing buttons, um, that technology actually had um, a profound capacity to um, influence us um, and to connect with us at levels um, that aren't even conscious, that are deep into the, the essence of who and what we are. Um, but after graduate school, um, largely driven from a kind of an, maybe a sort of an existential crisis of sorts, um, where I had kind of reached this, um, paradox of, of kind of having everything that I thought would make me happy in life. Um, and then realizing that I really felt like crap. Um, I was really forced to kind of question, um, what's probably the most fundamental assumption that we hold as kind of modern modern humans um, across cultures, which is that some set of circumstances will make you happy, right? Like there's, there's something that you can do. There's some way you can configure the world around you that will ultimately in the future be the right configuration whether it's job, house, white picket fence, um, you know, the right amount of meditation, you know, the, the right amount of uh, diet, you know, or proper diet, whatever it is, that there's some way of configuring things that will ultimately be your happiness. And I had kind of done that and I'd run out of excuses. And I was like, something's missing here. There's something else in this equation. And so I, I turned towards um, meditation. And really what I was turning towards was myself, 
that's really what was happening. And, and as an engineer, I'd spent um, most of my life solving these problems and working with the outside world, with things outside of me. Um, and I realized that I had literally missed half the equation. I had missed that there was an entire inner world that I was neglecting and I was really seriously neglecting it. I had become completely detached from my emotional experience, from my embodied experience. I was really living in my thoughts, in my mind, um, a kind of a very rational, logical existence. And um, when I came to realize, or what I came to realize was that everything that I was really looking for was inside of me. And that the entire quality of my existence, the entire quality of my life was really a function of how I related to myself and how I related to life. It was all up to me. It was all in the way that I um, viewed really who and what I am, right? My relationship to reality. Um, and, and I realized, wow, um, not only is this everything for me, not only is this true for me, but I started to realize this is kind of true for everyone. And I'm not saying anything new here, right? This is what mindfulness says. This is what, you know, every spiritual or really every religious tradition is pointing to in some way. Um, um, and um, the bigger thing that I realized was that um, most of the problems in our world um, which is kind of unique to our times, are human-generated problems, right? Um, sure, we have some natural disasters and we have things like that that happen, but largely, if you look around, almost every single major global crisis is something that human beings have created. And um, we've created those global crises as a reflection of our inner crisis, right? We're at war with each other because we're at war with ourselves, right? Um, we hate each other because we hate ourselves, right? The, the, the outer is reflected in the inner. Um, angry, greedy, fearful people create an angry, greedy, and fearful world, right? It's a simple equation. Um, and so the thing that struck me was that this endeavor of shifting human consciousness, of changing um, the human experience from the inside out was the most important problem of our times. That that was really the root of everything, at least for, you know, for me, from my view. And I, and I was holding on one hand, this passion and, and love of engineering and technology. And on the other hand, I was holding this recognition that, that the, the inward journey and the process of, um, beginning to love ourselves and beginning to make peace with ourselves and to, to, and to, to know compassion, to know connection, to know ourselves as connected to everything. Um, I was holding this on the other hand and I was like, well, how does technology relate to that? Because the two feel at odds to each other. They really almost feel like they're working in conflict. And the big aha moment, which I don't know if it was one moment, but, uh, you know, it sounds better in the story if it's a moment, um, is, is I realized that um, the technology is this way because we designed it this way. It's not this way inherently. And then it struck me that there was nothing that I would rather do than design technology to support deep, profound, and meaningful human experience, to support human connection, to support um, the evolution of, of, of human consciousness. Um, and, and that's what I've devoted my life to. Um, and it wasn't even so much a question of if is this possible or is this not possible, because it, it kind of seemed like a silly question, because um, as designers, as engineers, as creators of anything, not just technology, we can always take a step in the direction of having whatever we're creating be more in support of human flourishing, of human well-being. It's always possible. So this isn't a question of whether it's possible or not. It's just a question of whether or not we set our intention 
on doing it. And so that's what I, I really set my intention on. You know, Mikey, this is really interesting because um, it almost seems like there's a paradox, right? Because this whole, um, um, the whole discussion you're saying of, you know, us recognizing that we're connected to everyone and everything in the world and how can technology do that? Well, some people might argue that you could just go see a social network, right? And immediately you've got all of these connections and you are connected to everybody in the world and it's and it's instantaneous. Um, so what would you say to that? Yeah, yeah, thanks for pointing that out. So um, I actually, I, I'm, I'm generally, I'm kind of an optimist. So I, I look around and I, and I say, wow, um, this um, interconnected web of humanity is, um, is, is sort of happening, right? The, the, the technology landscape around us is in so many ways um, beginning to um, act as this kind of um, this, this massive expression of our interconnectedness and to, and to connect us in all these new ways that we've never been connected before. Right. Um, and, and so that's amazing, but also those of us that spend a lot of time on our computers and it's a lot of time on Facebook or whatever, know that there's something, um, missing there, right? It's not, um, it, it's not quite, um, you know, deeply satisfying, um, having, you know, a hundred or 500 or a thousand Facebook friends, um, doesn't seem to actually, um, make us feel um, more connected in a deep and meaningful way. And social isolation and loneliness are becoming an epidemic, right? And so there's a paradox. So if we're, if we're more connected in certain ways, um, then why are people lonelier than they've ever been? And one reason um, for, for my view is that it has to do not just with the quantity of connection, but the quality of connection, right? And um, it's not enough to just pass someone in the hall or have a quick chat at the water cooler or to, you know, um, send a few images or likes or texts, uh, you know, to someone, a Facebook friend online. Um, there's a deep human need for um, connection at the emotional level, for connection at the level of the felt experience, to be able to be vulnerable, to be able to, to be seen and heard and felt, right? Um, there are um, levels of connection that go um, much, much, much deeper than simply exchanging information exchanging content, right? Um, and we all know this. If we all think about the most uh, meaningful, the most memorable experience we've had with another person in our lives, um, how much of that had to do with um, information? How much of that had to do with words? And how much of that had to do with a felt experience? My guess is for most of us, that was probably a silent experience. It's probably holding someone in our arms right? Staring into someone's eyes, right? These are the things that impact us that really matter. And so um, one of my biggest passions right now, and my biggest concerns that are sort of bundled into one is, um, you know, I'll start with the concern. The concern is that if our technology landscape is not able to support this type of deep and meaningful connection, then in a way we're screwed. And um, the reason why I say that is because, um, you know, I, I would love it if everyone in their, in their sort of analog world, their sort of waking life was able to um, become more and more connected to each other, right? To find social networks in person, meeting in person, you know, that would be wonderful. And I encourage that. But when I look around, we're becoming increasingly embedded in a technology landscape. And the next generation is going to be even more embedded. And so my concern is if people are going to be more and more embedded in technology, then that technology better be able to support 
um, the type of social connection that we need for our health and our sanity. Um, and so that ends up being one of the biggest things I'm working on personally is thinking about how we design these technologies to support that level of connection. This is really interesting because I think when a lot of people might think of technology for human connection and wellness, we might well think of the apps and things that are used for meditation, of which there are loads. And I think these types of technologies have always been positioned as almost stress reduction in terms of their benefits. But you're saying that actually technology has the potential for far greater things for really deep human connection and elevating the level of our consciousness. Yeah. Um, for me, the, the, the sky is the limit. And, and the reason I say that is because um, I, 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 even though when I talk about technology in this context, I'm, yeah, I'm talking about stuff that runs on electricity. I'm talking about apps and software and, and, and that sort of thing, but also we can kind of zoom out a little bit, right? And we can take a broader perspective on what we're calling technology um, and really think more about um, the, the tools, the infrastructure, the systems we create as human beings. Um, and in that sense, meditation is a technology, right? These meditation techniques that we use, these are human inventions that were designed for a very specific purpose to change our relationship with ourselves and the world around us. But also, um, we are profoundly social animals and we have been creating tools and technologies to support social connection since the, you know, the dawn of humanity from, from tribal drumming ceremonies, you know, where we, where we dance around a fire with music to, um, you know, to modern, you know, dance, fueled, music fueled, um, you know, experiences, you know, everything we can, you know, you can imagine all the ways that we come together to connect. Um, and so when I talk about technology, really what I'm talking about is um, innovating on the already existing landscape of the pointers and tools and methods that we use as human beings to support a deep and meaningful human experience. And so you can ask this question of like, well, what's the evolution of meditation? If meditation is a tool that we've invented, how can it become better? How can it become more adapted to our modern context? Um, how can it become more accessible across cultures? Um, and for me, um, that means leveraging science and technology to support that, that innovation. And, and I guess to get back to your original point, um, I think one of the things that um, is, is um, most overlooked is, is our human potential. Um, it's, it's much more than re reducing stress. It's much more than feeling, you know, 10% happier. It's much more than having a few more friends that we can hang out with in the evening and have a laugh with. Um, we are extraordinary beings. Um, we have a, a, an unfathomable, unfathomable potential for, for um, connection, for compassion, for, for unconditional love, for, for peace and spaciousness, for clarity, for presence. Um, if you look at the brains of, of um, these monks who have meditated for tens of thousands of hours, I mean, they, they look very different than the brains of normal people. And it's not just the brains that look different. Their experience is profoundly different. They're almost like different species, right? They live a different life, a different, uh, a different reality. And, and that's our human potential, right? Um, and, and I firmly believe that, um, that not only can we create technologies to support that, but that's arguably the most important role that technology can play in here. So, Mikey, let's go back a little bit. What exactly is consciousness hacking? And also, how can consciousness be hacked? <laughs> so, thank you. Yeah, it's definitely uh, meant to be a sort of a provocative, uh, <laughs> provocative <laughs> term. Um, 
And, uh, you know, and, and also the term, the term hacking really, it kind of comes a lot from my, um, you know, I did my graduate work at MIT and, and the term hacking there really, what it really means is to come up with, um, new out of the box solutions to problems, you know, where, where, um, the term hacking can, can often mean to kind of break into a computer or something like that. In, in this context, it really means, um, um, it's about finding a new way, right. That, that, that may be totally different and totally unique. And, um, and consciousness hacking, what it is, is a global community, um, really, um, willing to take an out of the box approach to exploring, um, how do we as human beings, um, connect with ourselves and connect with each other. Right. Um, and, and do so in a way that is not in service or, um, um, uh, married to one religion or spiritual tradition or guru or whatever, but there's a willingness there to, to, to look at anything and to look at how can science and how can technology, um, be in support of that. Um, and it's just a, it's an innovation. It's really an innovation based approach to, to spirituality itself. Um, I, I call, I call it spiritual innovation. Um, and, and, when I stand in front of, you know, one of these groups, we meet in the Bay area, we have about 20 communities around the world. Um, and to get a sense of the demographic, I'll ask the group to raise their hand with three questions. I'll say, okay, who in the room has a, a meditation practice? And, you know, over 95% of the room will raise their hand. Then I'll say, who in the room is involved in or interested in science and technology? Usually like 85 or 90% of the room will raise their hand. Then the third question is interesting. I'll say, who in the room has um, left or is planning to leave a very stable, conventional life structure or job in favor of something totally new? And risky, but that is more in line with a deeper sense of purpose. And like 80% of the room will raise their hand. And I call it a community of practice and purpose. And I actually think that communities like this, not just around this topic, but on any given number of topics are, are really important and needed in these times, especially as, um, you know, religion and other organized ways that we would come together based on values and based on, um, you know, a common sense of purpose as those things are diminishing. Um, we need community that unites us at that level, at the level of our hearts, at the level of a deeper sense of connection and, the, and at the level of a sort of a larger purpose, something bigger than ourselves, whether that means it's a political purpose or an environmental purpose or whatever it is. Um, and so consciousness hacking is, is, is an example of that kind of community. This is really fascinating because in modern culture, spiritual experiences um, that aren't easily able to be quantified are kind of derided, right? We live in a data-driven society where we require evidence and scientific rigor to explain our experiences. So I'm wondering almost like what's your um, what's your counter to that like how do you then speak to the people of Stanford to the engineering community about the importance of spiritual experiences now um so first of all I got to do a little bit of a plug you gotta you, you gotta read this book Stealing Fire yeah um by Jamie Wheel and Stephen Kotler this is um bringing mystical experience, transcendent experience, um, bringing um, consciousness mainstream. And this was number 17, I think, at a certain point on the Amazon's global bestsellers list. Stephen Kotler's written multiple New York Times bestsellers. So this is, this is a major, you know, mainstream um, uh, book that's gaining a lot of traction. Um, and, um, and what this book represents is what's happening in a broader, what's happening more broadly culturally, which is that um, the importance of 
um, deeper and more transcendent human experience um, is seeping into our culture through um, conduits like, like mindfulness and like yoga and like, um, you know, psychedelics that are sort of making a comeback in certain ways. And a lot of this is fueled by um, research. Um, 30 years ago, meditation research would have been completely taboo. You would not have been allowed to do that in any mainstream university. And now if you're a mainstream university and you don't have a meditation research lab, um, you're like, you're, you're missing something, you know, you're like, you're not the cool kid on the block. Right. Um, and psych, uh, research into psychedelics at, at major places like, um, Johns Hopkins university, for example, um, is beginning to show the incredible transformative power of these substances in, in the right safe context. Um, scientifically, right? And so we're seeing the union, the merging of science and spirit. And it's that union which will allow for mainstream cultural adoption. And I think one of the major channels for that will ultimately be uh, technology. So Mikey, what examples then do you have of technology being able to mediate those states of consciousness that you're talking about, those those states of consciousness that psychedelics and really deep meditation can bring forth. What examples do you have of technology being able to do that for us? Cool. Thank you. Yeah, I always, <laughs> I always forget about examples, but <laughs> everyone's like, what is he talking about? Um, so uh, first thing I want to say is... Um, when I'm, when I'm imagining it in my mind, um, what I'm really talking about is, is nothing that we've ever seen. And I want to make that clear, that we have barely scratched the tip of the iceberg, right? So what I'm talking about is really um, something beyond our, our current imagination. That said, I'm going to give you the, the most straightforward example of, of like how this is being done in academia, for example. So... Um, there's a researcher named Judson Brewer um, who's at um, uh, UMass, University of Massachusetts right now. He was, at, he was at Yale before that, but they offered him an entire lab to run. So it was a pretty good deal. And what he does uh, first is he takes really advanced meditators and he studies their brains. And he explores um, what happens to their brain when they go into these very specific deep states of meditation. And he, after studying that for quite a while, was able to um, create a sort of a model um, that simplifies things a little and chooses uh, um, some specific parts of the brain that he think are the most important. Um, okay, so that's science. That's interesting. There's other people doing that. But what he does next is very different. And there's a few other folks doing it. Um, and this is where the big leap comes in. He takes novice meditators, right? And he wires them up with really um, sophisticated technology that can essentially scan the inside of their brain in real time, right? And this technology is, is essentially monitoring the parts of their brain that the very advanced meditators were able to change, right? And now what happens is as these novice meditators are sitting there, they're able to look at a screen or hear certain sounds that essentially uh, um, give them real-time um, reflection or feedback into how their brain um, uh, relates to the brain of the advanced meditator. It's like having um, an expert meditation teacher literally watching your brain. It's perhaps the most precise feedback you can possibly get. You know, it's one thing for a meditation teacher to say, you know, okay, focus on your breath a little more, you know, but it's another thing if they can actually read your brain and give you moment to moment feedback on the exact fluctuations of that part of the brain that has to do with those deep states of meditation. 
And in doing that, he's actually able to train these novice meditators how to get into these deep states of meditation, right? Now, that's one example. Now, there's hundreds of projects going on that are doing this in different ways. Um, I just used a, a really interesting um, virtual reality experience. Actually, there's a number of these um, virtual reality experiences. I think VR will be one of the most powerful platforms um, for this for this area because it's so influential and it can so deeply influence and hold human attention, which is what meditation is all about is holding and shaping human attention. And so um, you have a project called sound self, for example, which is um, like digital shamanism where you are staring into this um, incredible changing vortex of swirling light and patterns and then you you tone into it like mm, like that, and the whole thing sings and harmonizes back with you. And as it's harmonizing back with you, the entire vortex of light shifts and changes with your tone and the tone of the system. And it's really creating whole new types of experiences that we never really imagined before. Um, and then on the other side, you have you know some really interesting, more mainstream. Technologies like the the Muse headband, which is um, a device that goes behind your ears and across your forehead, and it just like what's happening in Judson Brewer's lab, except this is a, a consumer version. It monitors your brain. You connect it to an app. You put on your headphones and you listen. And what you're hearing are the sounds of ocean waves and and wind blowing. And those ocean waves and that blowing wind is a reflection of your mental activity. And as your mind quiets, the, the landscape quiets. And so if you're just learning to meditate and you're like, what, what the heck do I do? This gives you important feedback to guide you along your path. But one of the most important things about it is that um, it builds a cultural bridge as well. So my parents who would never meditate, um, I bought them one of these muses and they'll send me these pictures of themselves. They're like, hey, we're musing, you know, and they don't even call it meditation. Um, and so the technology also um, is unique and valuable because it's probably the most universally culturally accessible um, human um, phenomena that exists, right? Language, um, food, music, religion, all of these things um, are tightly culturally bound in one country or one culture or another. But over 90% of the world has access to a cell phone. Over 90%, right? And so there's something universal culturally about technology. And so if we can get away from the religious and cultural trappings that this stuff has been in historically, and we can accomplish the same thing even more effectively using technology, well, then all of a sudden we can reach everyone on the planet. You're absolutely right. And even if, you know, the, the impact, the positive impact that you can have on that many people is even 1%, then that kind of change would be extraordinary. Um, huge, huge. Um, and I believe in the innovative capacity of human beings. Our our, our spirit, our, our ingenuity is so remarkable. I mean, we can land people on the moon, like it's unbelievable. And so I just imagine like, what if we put that, like the, the same amount of effort and energy and money and ingenuity we put towards curing cancer, what if we put even a fraction of that towards supporting compassion and presence and love in the world? Yep, absolutely agree with you, Mikey. I wonder though if we can like bring it back now into the present. And I'm really interested to know what you think about the way that we live our lives right now, our digitized lives. Like, do you what to what extent do you think that our digitized lives now contribute to overall human flourishing and well-being? Do you think it actually supports that? Um. I have a, I have a little a little saying. Um, it's that we build what we are, and we are what we build. And we um, collectively exist. Um, 
our existence is, is kind of um, dominated by, by thought, by mind wandering. Um, we're addicted to our thoughts, really. And research shows this. Um, Harvard, uh, a Harvard study um, looking at thousands of people found that over 50% of the time we're, we're lost in our thoughts, regardless of what we're doing. Sorry, can I say that? Um, so you just to say that again, we're addicted to our thoughts, even when they're negative. Oh, particularly our, our <laughs> particularly our negative thoughts. And I think that um, um, anyone can, if you, if you just take a moment to, to, to stop and, and notice what's happening, I think we can all recognize this. I'm sure many of us have had the experience of trying to fall asleep and the mind just keeps going and going. We're analyzing what happened, what we said in that conversation and why, you know, how could we have said that? And, oh, we're so stupid. Or, you know, how did we do that wrong? This that voice in your head, um, we're so used to it. We're so accustomed to it that we, we just assume that that's normal, that that's us, right? But what we don't realize is that that voice is not actually what we are, that that voice is, is just an aspect of ourselves that is, that is arising, um, and we fuel it, and we believe it, and, and we suffer because of it. It hurts to, to hate ourselves and to criticize ourselves constantly. It's painful, but we do it. And, and that um, constant, um, that state of being in this kind of constant mind wander that we, that we largely exist in as a, as a, as a humanity right now, um, we've built that. We've literally created a technology landscape that reflects it. I mean, Facebook and Twitter and other social platforms, they're, they're like an outsourced mind wander, right? They are the externalization of what's happening inside of our heads. What you think about that meal you just ate, you know, how cute your cat is, um, you know, what you think about Donald Trump, like whatever the thing is that's going on in your mind, we've now externalized it into this kind of collective um, you know, sort of uh, brain dump around us. And so not only do we have to sit and listen to our own thoughts, but now we're kind of having to sit and listen to everyone else's, you know? And it's not, you know, particularly pleasant all the time. Um, and so this isn't, the technology landscape around us is not designed to support human well-being, right? Just like our thought patterns are, really not designed to support well-being, right? Um, and so it's understandable that people um, feel stressed out. They feel agitated. They feel attention. A lot of people feel attention with their phones, with their email, with the technology around them, because at one hand, we need it. It's providing an incredible service, and it's uh, um, opened so many doors. It's created um, so much opportunity. And on the other hand, um, it doesn't feel good, right? It's hard, it's harsh, it's abrasive. Um, and so we have, a, we have a problem, right? And the problem is getting worse. And one of the reasons why it's getting worse is the same reason why um, um, we have um, um, diet-related um, uh, death and illness as one of the, the you know, um, uh, epidemics in our modern world, because we have a food industry um, that is driven by um, profit, not by um, health. And so if you have a food industry that, that um, is designed to make more and more money when more and more food sells, and it doesn't matter whether or not people are healthy, then you're gonna create the tastiest, you know, most addictive food you can possibly engineer. And you're gonna put the best engineers in the world in creating the tastiest food imaginable. And you're gonna put whatever crazy chemicals and weird ingredients and all that kind of stuff and make it as cheap and as inexpensive as possible. Um, and the result of that is that we're literally dying. We're literally dying because of the food we're eating. And um, unfortunately, the same thing is true now except instead of uh, the battle for our taste buds, it's the battle for human attention. It's the attention economy. And um, every app on your phone is competing for your attention. And um, they don't give a crap about whether or not you're better off 
after using that thing. All that matters is if they can successfully hold and maintain your attention because if they do, they make money. And I'm not saying people are evil. I'm not saying this is some like, you know, crazy, you know, shadow conspiracy thing. I just mean these are economic forces at play, right? This is just a system that we've created. And so what you're seeing now is this, um, this competition where now the best engineers in the world are designing the most addictive, um, the most engaging um, experiences imaginable. Um, and um, what we're going to have are these things where, and, and VR is going to make it a thousand times more salient, where we're going to have these experiences that we can barely remove ourselves from that are that are literally engineered so well that we can't even take the thing off our heads um but the the result of it will not be any benefit to us because it will not be designed to benefit us it will just be designed to make uh, more money for the designers of those products agreed so some of the solutions that people have been putting forward to this have been to unplug and the whole discussion about digitally detoxing ourselves and unplugging, etc. for periods of time, that's really, really popular now um, amongst people. And I'm wondering, Mikey, do you actually agree with this? Or again, are you still thinking that people can use the technology they have now to get, you know, to kind of reclaim their attention back and enhance their well-being? Um, yeah. So there uh, are folks that are doing that, me included. Um, and, and, and I will say there's, there's two approaches and there's totally valid. Like I unplug, I go in the forest, I mean, super important and needed. So there's the unplug approach. Um, and, and also there is this question of, um, how do we redesign technology to make it better? So there's both approaches and both are important and needed. Um, and um, I'm leading a retreat in November at Esalen, which is a, um, a really amazing, um, famous retreat center in, in California. And it's a technology augmented meditation retreat. And it's one of the first of its kind that I know of. And I'm partnering with an amazing a meditation teacher named Dustin DePerna, and he's been teaching meditation for years. And the way this will work is um, we'll have 24 people, all of them um, wired up to a system that measures their heart, the activity of their heart. And um, all of the data, all of that heart activity from the 24 people will flow into this central computer where it will look at the relationship between everyone's heart rhythm, um, looking for the, the measures, the correlates of human connection. And then it creates a constantly changing soundscape that is a reflection of the, of the sense of connection between the group, of the degree to which the group is literally synced up. And so the group will be led in meditation by a person. So it's not just technology, but then the technology will be there sort of in collaboration with the person, collaboration with the meditation to support and to enhance the experience. Um, so that's, that's one, um, one approach to it. That's very literal, but there's other um, really interesting stuff happening. Um, there is um, actual um, uh, monasteries. Um, I'm doing a quick, um, there we go. So there's something called the Center for um, Mindful Learning, um, led by a guy named Soryu for All, and they're actually creating um, hybrid meditation retreats where um, entrepreneurs and makers can actually come um, and and sort of team up with monastics. People are actually living a monastic life, and the whole point here is that you actually work and meditate on the same day. In a, in a monastery context. And, and the, the point is to actually try to integrate these things together. And another person to check out is uh, Vincent Horn. Yeah, check out um, meditate.io. And Vincent is really, uh, he created Buddhist Geeks. He's one of the 
you know, pioneers at this intersection. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that, that this is happening and it's really, really important to integrate these things together. So Mikey, in this age of distraction and hyper-connectivity, what would you say are the most important human qualities and how do we cultivate those? Yeah. Um, thanks for asking that. Um, first, I just want to like acknowledge your question, which is that, um, it's human qualities that are the most important in this hyper-connected age, right? Meaning, meaning you, 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 there's something implicit in your question, which I agree with, which is that in this hyper-connected age, it's not about the, the hyperness or the technologies or the landscape or whatever it is. It's about human experience and human intention, right? And, and that's, for me, what it comes down to is human intention. Um, it's, it's really, and we talked about this a little before the, before the interview, um, because I really believe that, um, we create as a reflection of who and what we are. And so if we're creating from a place of insecurity or fear or greed, um, we will create a very different world than if we create from a place of, um, compassion and care and, and love. And so um, for me, the most important quality is um, for anyone is a sense of commitment and responsibility to one's own experience, to where you stand, to who you are, to the depth of your own self-awareness the degree to which you're willing to see your own crap, your own shadow, the darkness within all of us that we all have and hold that lovingly, right? The degree to which we're able to um, face the really unpleasant and difficult aspects of ourselves. Because the more that we do that, the more that will be reflected in everything else we do in the world. And that's ultimately, you know, that's our responsibility, I believe, as human beings. What do you think then, Mikey? Like, what would you recommend to people right now listening? How can they, what steps do you think people can take right now to shift the quality of their digitized experiences towards that flourishing, towards embracing that shadow side, as you said? Yeah. Um, so there are some great, um, resources out there. It's actually amazing. This is like a golden age for, for everyone that wants to, to have access to any number of, 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 um, you know, pointers and approaches. And so I would say to start, if this is new for you, um, grab a meditation app, um, check out insight timer, or um, uh, I, I really like an app called Sphere, um, which you have to like kind of Google Sphere meditation because Sphere, there's a lot of spheres out there. Um, or uh, Headspace, right? These are apps that will help you to um, begin a meditation practice. Um, and then there are technologies um, like the Spire, which helps you monitor your breathing throughout the day. Um, Leaf. L-I-E-F, which is a wearable that helps you monitor your heart rate variability throughout the day. Um, there's technology from a company called HeartMath, Heart, H-E-A-R-T-M-A-T-H. Um, there's the Muse headband. Um, there's a number of technologies which, um, if that's our path to kind of have a more digital, digitally integrated life, are, are re can be really helpful and support that. It's interesting because to me, it sounds that you're optimistic that the technology community is finally starting to kind of move towards catering for human flourishing. I live in such a bubble. <laughs> I don't even, I don't even, in my world, yeah, everyone's doing it. <laughs> all, everyone around me was showing up at conferences. Yeah, it's great. Um, 
And then I was in Florida, you know, getting getting a taxi to the airport. And I was like, I was trying to describe what I'm doing. And I was like, oh, shoot, that's a pretty good, um, that's a pretty good wake up call on one hand, um, because the guy kind of had no idea what I was talking about. Um, but on the other hand, it was kind of amazing. He started um, lecturing me. And this is someone who meditation, you know, it's, it's, he's barely heard of it. I mean, it's a very, you know, small town in Florida. And he started explaining to me in this very, you know, from this place of sort of obviousness, how if you're not connected to yourself, you can't expect to connect to other people. And if you feel like crap, you're going to act like crap. And he just had this like, like wisdom about him. And it reminded me that, that um, this is true for everyone. You know, in every life circumstance, it doesn't matter whether you meditate or not. Um, we all recognize this, right? The relationship between our relationship to ourselves and our relationship to the world around us. And we can only change one by changing the other. The two are reflections of each other. So Mikey, where can people find out more about you and your work and connect with you? Yeah, um, um, probably my website, MikeySiegel.com, M-I-K-E-Y-S-I-E-G-E-L.com. And you can check out Consciousness Hacking at Kohak, C-O-H-A-C-K dot life. Well, thanks so much again for being part of the show. It's been a complete pleasure having you on and thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Lawrence. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's been really fun.